0: Once again, ladies and gentlemen, Geeks and Geekettes, this is SF, a.k.a. Zandrax, the Mayor of Geekville and the host of Geekville Radio, coming at you with an encore presentation. Yes, as of this recording, on January the 26th in the year of our Lord, 2024, it is the 45th anniversary of the first airing of the Dukes of Hazzard. And anybody that knows me in real life or has listened to Nostalgia Trip knows that we here Geekle Radio are big Dukes of Hazard fans. So, like I said, this is an encore presentation. This is of the first ever episode of Nostalgia Trip, where Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock and I do talk the Dukes of Hazard. A lot of fun stuff that goes down in this episode, not just because it's a certified southerner and a certified Yank talking arguably the most southern show to ever exist, but you hear a lot of stuff you may not know, even if you're a big fan of the Dukes of Hazard, there's stuff here you may not know, like where is Hazard County on a map? After we're done with this episode, you'll be able to see where Hazard County would be on a map because we do have a link to these show notes at geekvilleradio.com slash dukes-45th. That's Dukes 45th. You'll also find out which Duke was a Vietnam vet and a lot of the history of the show that a lot of fans just may not know. So if you're a fan of the Dukes of Hazzard, definitely pull up a chair, listen to this one if you haven't done so already, and listen to this encore presentation of the first Geekville Radio Nostalgia Trip, where we pay tribute to the Dukes of Hazard. Geekville Radio.
1: Just a good old boy, never meaning no harm.
0: Yes, as that iconic music fills your ears right now. I know it's not our usual Geekville theme music, but it's a song I treasure so dearly much. And, of course, that is the iconic song opening to the Dukes of Hazzard, which we're going to talk about in this special edition of Geekville Radio that I like to call the Nostalgia Trip, where we kind of talk about older shows or movies or whatever that might have influenced us in our childhood. And you're certainly free to... Have your own submissions if you find us at geekvilleradio.com or on Facebook or Twitter at Geekville Radio. So to help me talk about the Dukes of Hazzard, I have my usual co-host for Geekville Radio and a certified expert on all things Dukes of Hazzard, Crazy Train Jonathan Bullock.
1: All aboard, ladies and gentlemen. This is going to be a bit interesting. You're going to have a true Southerner, born and raised, talking about probably the most Southern television show of all time with a true Yankee. This is going to be interesting, folks.
0: I know, Train. You're, you're just the same. But that's, for me, that's like right up there with like the Star Wars theme and some of the music from Smoking the Bandit and such. And uh, obviously, I had to play the the movie version of that theme, which I like the single, which I think it's where we'll kick off the talk. There actually were two different versions of that theme. One was for TV and one was for radio and single. I think we both had the single back
1: in the day, right? Oh, yeah. I've, I've, it's very constant rotation on my current playlist, too. Little known fact, I love Johnny Cash, okay? But Waylon Jennings is probably my favorite country star of all time. Just something about his voice, his lyrics, his style. It's not pure country. It's got a little bit of boogie-woogie. I mean, you got to start with Buddy Holly. So mm-hmm. Waylon, just that baritone to his voice. I love Waylon. And that's no disrespect to Johnny Cash. I mean, I know a lot of people think Johnny Cash is the greatest country performer of all time, and I completely understand that. I think Waylon would probably tell you that, too. The Chase music was done by the Wailers, which was Waylon's band, but Waylon's just my guy. So the fact he was tied to this show and did the theme song and was the balladeer, yeah, come on. So Dukes of Hazard started, and we'll kind
0: of go with, the, I don't know if you call them humble beginnings, but... 1979 was when it first aired, it was filmed in 78, and it was, of course, a lot of the old school fans know, it was actually based off of a movie in 1975 called Moonrunners, which had Whalen as Balladeer doing voiceovers. I think Whalen did the music for that that movie as well. He he did? Yeah, but I think both of us agree, we talked a little bit about this off mic, that maybe it might have been the success of Smokey and the Bandit in 77, which was... We all know what the top-grossing movie in 1977 was. Well, the second biggest-grossing movie of 77 was Smoking the Bandit, and right. I think that kind of ushered in with the late 70s that kind of country music, southern tinged car chase genre. I mean, is I mean, is that fair to say? Do you think?
1: Yeah, I think not just the Dukes, but I think a lot of I think between Smoky and the Bandit and then the the, the country song Convoy. You will remember this as well as I do and any of our listeners that are around our age. There was a CB craze in the United States at the time. Everybody would go out and get CBs and stuff. And so I know a lot of the people associated with Dukes of Hazard have said many times publicly that it was a, a, a combination of why the Dukes caught on. But a big part of it was Smokey the Bandit, Convoy, just that kind of – that was really in the public conscience at the time. Now, if you're talking – we we just brought up Waylon, and you're talking the, the the beginnings of the show – Just so the the listeners understand, the one thing that this movie, the Moonrunners, had in common with the Dukes, besides essentially was the same plot, was the the show creator was also the producer and creator of Moonrunners, a guy named Guy Waldron, who is a Southerner. He grew up in Kentucky, and he based both the movie and the show uh, on the real-life story of a real-life moonshiner named Jerry Rushing, who actually had a guest guest starring role in, in, I think, the second episode ever that was supposed to be a recurring role and did not work, that did, 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 didn't turn out to be that. He did wind up later suing Guy and and, and a, some of the other people involved with the show over what he thought was intellectual property because it was a, an oral history he had given that they based this stuff on. And Guy Waldron, they settled out of court for an undisclosed amount. Guy and him remained friends. But Guy created the show basically a combination of these stories from Jerry Rushing and his own youth in kentucky where they're also growing up in, in the hills of kentucky he saw moonshiners too so for those of you that don't know i got guys i guess there's probably not many who don't but as a southerner let me explain this to you <laughs> moonshine is whiskey
0: mm-hmm. it
1: is it is pure it is pure grain whiskey usually made with corn but can have other barley rice other grains in it that it's not it's it's not aged so it's a clear very strong high proof whiskey that was home brewed now, and, if I may, right.
0: if if I may, I don't want to step on your toes. I just want to see if I have my history right as a Yank. Mm-hmm. If I understand it right, the reason why it was called moonshine was because it was usually brewed at night under the shine mm-hmm. of the moon be, dating exactly. back to the prohibition days. Because, of course, in the, I think it was the 20s, right. alcohol right. was outlawed. So mainly in the South, there were people that would set up their own mm-hmm. uh, private distilleries in their shed or their homes or whatever. And they mm-hmm. would smuggle the moonshine around in their cars, which actually is kind of sort of long story short, where NASCAR
1: had its roots. It's exactly right, but yeah, moonshine actually goes back farther than that. If you understand the 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 history of of, of this region of the country, there are two distinct regions to the south. You have the coastal states on both the Gulf Coast and the Atlantic Coast, which have a lot of influx of from obviously shipping and and, and the ocean. And when a lot of people think of the antebellum south and what's presented in the media, that's the area, that's the region of the south they'll show you. That's where the big cotton plantations, tobacco plantations were in those regions. But as you move inland into the northern part of and the, the western part of these states, like the Carolinas, Virginia, and into the landlocked southern states like Kentucky and Tennessee, there were hill areas settled by Scotch-Irish. When the Scotch Irish came over here in the 1700s, whiskey was a form of currency for them. So these people had been brewing their own whiskey for a long, long time. You know, wait, Irishmen and Scotsmen drink? Say it ain't so. <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anybody. And and you have to understand, whiskey back then wasn't just for getting drunk. I mean, it had medicinal purposes. It was good for cleaning. If you if you had if you're worried about why, I mean, it, it was it was a form of currency.
0: Yeah, yeah. If you cut yourself, you know.
1: Right, but you're right. As as the federal government began to impose taxation on, on alcoholic beverages and and then tariffs and stuff for transportation of it, and then, of course, prohibition like you're talking about, it became illegal. And these people would start doing it, making their shine at night by the, by the light of the moon. And the reason they were called moon runners is because in these cars that you're talking about – and part of the reason why they did this too was also economic I should bring up – a lot of these people in these these inland, these hill areas of the south I'm talking about, uh, the upstate of South Carolina and Tennessee and north Georgia and north Alabama and Kentucky, West Virginia, western Virginia, western part of the state of Virginia. Before they had cars, you had horse and buggy to carry stuff. It was much easier to take the corn that you grew on your subsistence farm and brew it down into alcohol and, and transport. You could, you could transport a whole lot more money's worth of alcohol than you could corn. Do you follow what I'm saying? When you look mm-hmm. at the bulk of – when you look at both like a tear weight or bulk – so that was a lot of the per- reason for it too. But as you pointed out, when prohibition started, especially in areas where you're from, like in Chicago, that border on states like Kentucky and yeah. and, and places where they made it, these bars that these these speakeasies you hear about in the t- the pro- twenties pro- during the prohibition days, they were right there. It was it was easier than trying to get imported and get them through federal ports and stuff. So that's where a, that's where a lot of the tradition of the cars came in and what became the Hollywoodized as time would go on with things like Moonrunners and Dukes of Hazard and, and other White Lightning was a great movie with Steve McQueen back in the day. Or sorry, not Steve McQueen, uh, Robert Mitchum. So th- that's, where it comes, that's where it comes from. And White Lightning was uh, just a nickname. Mountain Dew was another nickname for it.
0: Another one, uh, I don't know if it was a true story or not, but there was a Richard Pryor movie called Grease Lightning.
1: Yeah. One of my, one of my favorite country songs, another one of my favorite country is called Corn Liquor, which is by Buck Owens. And uh, it's all about what, what it is. And Drew drinking that awful stuff, and it made him fall on the floor. <laughs> corn liquor. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, But that's another – because that's usually the grain, the only grain they use. Because the soil around those parts of the south are really conducive to growing corn. So anyway, uh, and they became moon runners because they would often would run these illegal – this illegal transportation at night, often without headlights on. They were running by the light of the moon. They were moon runners. And that's essentially the characters that the dukes from the moon runners – and then the Dukes were as well. And, and that's kind of where the show starts off. I guess you could talk about the start of the show and, and, and what we know about the Dukes as we get dropped in.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. Like, like we said, it was it was 79 and it was centered around the Dukes farm. And mm-hmm. we had, of course, Bo and Luke, uh, John Schneider and Tom Woolpat, and then Catherine Bacchus, Daisy and then Uncle Jesse. So you got three different cousins. So that's a lot of different parents there i guess uncle jesse must have had a lot of brothers i I don't think they ever actually
1: explained the lineage there did they yeah if you if you if you watch a lot you do understand what happens is bo luke and and daisy all have all have different parents but they're all siblings of jesse jesse and his wife never had any children and it's the family farm has been there forever and bo and luke's parents when they were babies left them with jesse and his wife and went to atlanta for something and they died in a car wreck, and so Jesse Jesse raised Bo and Luke. And I guess Bo was just a little baby, and, and Luke was like a toddler because they're about I think they're about three or four years apart. Yeah. You know,
0: yeah. There's it's a couple years. I know there it's like ten years in real life, but I think part of right. that is because John Schneider lied about his age when he was auditioning, if I recall correctly. Yeah,
1: he, he was he was only eighteen, <laughs> and they were looking for like somebody who was twenty five, and then Daisy. Her parents died too, but I can't remember how they died, but she came to live at the farm when she was in pigtails is the way it's described when they give a little bit of her backstory. So I'm guessing probably what five, anywhere between five and seven, probably. Mm -hmm. So essentially all three of these cousins were, were raised by uncle Jesse and his wife died somewhere in that point when they were all small children. So he definitely is the paternal father figure and the family, like a lot of families, like I said, they're. It's one of the clues that gives you to what part of the state of Georgia Hazard, because Hazard is fictional supposed to be, but we'll talk about that later, is the fact they are moon runners. They are moonshiners. The, the Dukes supposedly have the best, the best family recipe for shine in like all the southeast, and everybody wants the Dukes moonshine. But the show starts with Bo and Luke being on probation because they got caught running shine. And Jesse cuts a deal with the federal government to, to, to get the boys only probation if he swears and promises never to, to make the moonshine again, and that becomes a recurring theme throughout the run of the show. Yes. Jesse just refuses to make shine because he made a promise to the government because he just doesn't Jesse don't lie. And, and that also became an integral part of the characters of Bo and Luke. One of the things that I think for me as a youth and a lot of people was they they, they used bow as both bow and arrows. They never used mm-hmm. guns. They couldn't use guns because of their probation. Uh, they also couldn't leave Hazard County without the permission of their probation officer who happened to be, Boss Hogg, which we'll talk about his character in a little bit. But anyway, it's, it, that's kind of the, the premise. I did forget to mention, we were, I, I need to refer back to this before we get going. When the show was originally pitched to CBS, the only person that was tied to it, to talk about the importance of Waylon, to go back to Waylon, he was the only person tied to it. He'd agreed off of the movie to do it, and that sold, that, that's what got it greenlit, was that they knew Waylon was such a big star that, it, that somebody would watch it because Waylon was tied to it. This is before they cast anybody else. He was the first cast member cast.
0: Yeah, in, in the late seventies, Whalen was that A-lister that kind of everything he did to say turned to gold, but every ever even if you weren't a fan of country music, you'd you'd heard of Whalen.
1: I mean, at this point for, for perspective, I think it was seventy five or was it seventy six he put out one of the outlaws, which was an which was a live album that was himself, his wife Jessie Coulter, who is the mother of Shooter, his son, that some of you might know the current country star, and Will uh, Willie Nelson. And Tom Paul Glazer, who's a country songwriter and guitarist, that was the very first country album to go platinum, to be certified platinum. And that was like in 76. So that's right around the time period we're talking about. He was as hot as you could get.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Now, I also seem to recall the last bit of background here before we truly get into the characters, is Mm -hmm. the Duke's Farm, if I recall correctly, there was a mortgage out on it that Mm -hmm. I think also had to stem from that, that, that legal ramblings, because every so often... One of Boss Hogg's many schemes that would happen throughout the show would be try to find some way to foreclose on on the farm and and, and kick the Dukes out.
1: Right. I don't know if it had anything to do with probation. I think just Boss Hogg pretty much owned or had the mortgage on everything in Hazard County because he by far was the richest man in the county. And his family had been the richest people in the county going back generations. You find that out as the course of the show goes on. But I mean, I guess we should start breaking down the characters then to kind of give everybody an idea. You've already brought up Bo and Luke. Why don't you – I'll start with Bo since I was actually Bo for Halloween when you're as a kid, <laughs> then you'll go to Luke, and we'll just go back and forth. How's that sound between – talk about a character each? Sure. So your, your, your two heroes will start out with Bo. Bo is John Schneider. He's the blonde-headed one. He's younger. He's a little bit of a hothead. He does most of the driving, and they drive a car named the General Lee, which is a 1969 Dodge Charger, painted orange, with O one one painted on the side, and a Confederate rebel flag on the top, with a wonderful – horn that plays the first 12 bars of dixie mm-hmm. and he was according to the show's lore one of the best car drivers if not the best car driver in hazard county and he's a bit of the hothead he he tends to get a little bit more distracted by the girls and he like i said he's the younger of the two what we know about his, his character based on stuff coming up is he was a star linebacker and running back in high school he was a star basketball player in high school a great archer uh, an avid boar hunter and fisher, fisherman, and like I said, great a great car driver, and is in the Marine Reserves, Marine Reserve Corps. So because there's a couple episodes where he's not there, and they explain it away as he's off doing his his whatever that stuff you have to do when you're in the reserves. Yeah, I guess that leads to Luke, and I'll let you handle Luke.
0: <laughs> yeah, Luke is clearly the older of the cousins and was played by Tom Wopat who like i said i think is several years older i want to i want to nine, say like 9 then,
1: or 10 years older than John Schneider i think so,
0: something like yeah and while bo is depicted as being the better driver luke is definitely depicted maybe not explicitly so but certainly depicted as being better in the fist fight which i believe he was a trained right. boxer and was. he had a stint in the marine corps uh, out of out Ooh. of high school i think bo was still was still in right. high school so it's one of those right. things if there was ever a duke's Drinking game, which maybe there is. I mean, it's the internet. One of (laughs) one of the things that would definitely be a moment to take a drink would be when the Duke boys get into a fist fight, and Luke has to bail Bo out of the fight because it happens almost every fist fight.
1: (laughs) Right, you're 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 right. And when when you're talking the era, you're talking Luke was in the Marines. He's a Vietnam War vet. He served. He fought in Vietnam, and he was a boxer in the Marine Corps. And a funny thing, if when you study the show. You talk about Paul Baxley, who was the, the stunt coordinator, the one for all those great car stunts you saw in these fights we're talking about. He was the guy that coordinated all that. He was legendary. His family is a legendary stuntman. His kids do it now, and his his family did it before that. And we'll get to Paul Baxley later. But Paul has openly said both John and Tom were great actors and great athletes, but just like their characters, Tom was always just a little bit better at the fight choreography and and John was a little bit better at the driving stuff, so it even it even worked. Just to what they naturally were as human beings. So I thought I found yeah. that kind of interesting myself. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And two other things that are worth noting about Luke, since he is the older cousin, he is also kind of depicted as being the wiser of the two, and it's his plans that usually wind up working. A lot of times, Bo might come up with something in the beginning of the episode, because we'll get to in a minute about how. TV episodes were structured in those days and how, how different it is now, but yeah, Luke was the smarter of the two, and also it was quite the accident. One of the trademark iconic things about Dukes of Hazard is they run out to the General Lee and they slide across the hood of the car. Well, that actually started as a bit of an accident. I, I believe Tom Wopat was supposed to hop across the, the fender or the, or the hood. The hood. And, the hood. Yeah. And he he slipped a little bit and just kind of just kind of dragged along and they just kept it in there because it still looked kind of cool and then yep. it became a, a yep. staple for the rest of the shows. Just about any and- time they ran out to the to. Uh, drive off in the general lee one of them would slide across the hood and which that had to be a well polished hood in order to slide because believe me (laughs) i tried sliding across many uh car hoods it's not easy unless you got a lot of polish on that that hood
1: yeah and the thing of it the thing of it is, is that was uh you can see that every episode that that he's in because tom is the first actor listed in the opening credits and that's the scene when his name comes on screen is him sliding across the the hood and if you'll notice when that scene happens there's a, there's a radio antenna. The CB antenna's on the, on the, on the trunk, but the radio antenna was on the passenger side next to the hood. He actually cut his leg pretty bad on that and had to get stitches. And if you notice, every, that was, in the, I think, in the first episode that that happened. Yeah, they a,
0: a lot of the stuff you see in the introduction to the show, at least for the first several seasons, almost all of those scenes were from the, the pilot episode, if I recall correctly.
1: Right, exactly. And, and if you'll notice from that point on, there was never a radio antenna on the front of the General Lee, so because they didn't want him to get cut again. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I guess the next character I'd, when I'd talk about would be Daisy, which of course was played by Catherine Bach, mm-hmm. who was uh, full disclosure right up there. Linda Carter is one of my first boyhood crushes. Uh, mm-hmm. Daisy was, like I said, their younger cousin who was raised with them. As the time, she's a little girl. Um, she is. She's most famous for being for her her high cut off hot pant shorts called which have been called Daisy Dukes. Those were created completely by accident. They didn't know what Catherine was going to wear. She's a bit of a seamstress. That's kind of one of her hobbies of sewing. And they told her when they were – they we should mention this. The first five episodes actually were filmed in Georgia. They were filmed in and around Conyers and and Covington, Georgia, which is about halfway between Atlanta and the the South Carolina-Georgia state line. Mm, I'd say roughly a little bit north and east of Atlanta. So anyway, they told her to go across the street to this local tavern they had there in Conyers and just look at what the waitresses were wearing. And they had them wearing like these long sleeve shirts that were low cut with these short little mini dresses that were gingham to match the tablecloths and go-go boots. And she's like, I ain't wearing that. So she just made the shorts herself and, and put them on and they loved it. But the censors were like, oh, that's a little too much. So you'll notice as, as you've watched the shows, she always has on flesh-colored nylons, which looks kind of dumb with the hot shorts. But that was the, – they had to do that because the censors didn't want it because it was so close. To, they didn't want it to show – this is 1970s we're talking about. You know? <laughs> this is a little different than they are now. And another thing you need to notice about Daisy's character is that she only wore that stuff – that was her uniform for work. She only, she only wore it when she worked at the Boar's Nest, which was the local tavern. That was owned and operated by Boss Hog. And we'll get to Boss Hog in a little bit. That's the only time she ever wore those outfits. The rest of the time you saw Daisy, she would be wearing jeans and, and, and a much more conservative top. In later seasons, she would often be presented more of a, of a modern-day southern belle. And she would be wearing nice day dresses for that time period. Of course, she had gorgeously long legs and pretty eyes. And she's presented as being tough and strong and, and smart, but a bit naive. Mm-hmm. And I guess the best way to describe her is the way Waylon, the balladeer, describes her in the first episode. She shoots like Andy Oakley, she drives like Richard Petty, and she knows all the lyrics to every Dolly Parton song. Yeah,
0: it's the way I describe Daisy is she's a Southern Belle first and a hot chick second. I mean, she doesn't look right. like she's trying to act pretty. She, she just is. And mm-hmm. again, much like Bo and Luke, I think you can put her in that lawful good category where sure, you know, she's going to do the right thing. She's, she's not a selfish person at all. In fact, she's arguably the, the most selfless person out of the entire family, with the possible exception of Uncle Jesse. And like you said, she also is depicted as being a pretty darn good driver in her own right. And we'll get into that when we get into the, the vehicles, because as I like to say, you can kind of tell where kind of long in the story or in the show you are based on, what she's driving? Yeah, what, what she's driving, what some of the other characters are driving.
1: Yeah, and I think Daisy was in a—I think Catherine Bott was in a real interesting position because she, prese- she was presented to be the sex symbol on the show. Not that Bo and Luke weren't. I mean, that's part of the reason the show was successful, too. You had a gorgeous woman that was wearing these short shorts and and two really good-looking guys that they always had reasons for them to take their shirts off. So, I mean, <laughs> they were hitting all the demographics there, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> but I think Daisy—you and me have talked about off mic— Daisy may have dressed sexy and hot, but she was a good girl. She went to church every Sunday, said grace. Yes, ma'am. No, ma'am. She was not the kind. She, she may have looked like what you would call a a, a a bit whorish or a slutty, but she wasn't one. You agree right. with that, don't you? Right. Right. Absolutely. Well, I guess that brings us up to Uncle Jesse. You're going to handle that, I guess.
0: Yeah. Uncle Jesse also, I would say, lawful good. We talked about him before that he was a moon runner in his day and really had an accomplice in those days as well, which which we'll get to as far as the backstory. And like you said earlier, he's the father figure. He really would do anything for his family. He's the one that will kind of stick his neck out and barter a deal when the Duke boys are in trouble and can't fend for themselves. And obviously, Denver Pyle was, I'm guessing, probably fifty something in. In those right. days, mm-hmm. uh, I think he was in his 70s when he passed. So he really didn't do much of the action. Occasionally, they'd have him jump something if he was driving because he had, of course, taught all the Dukes how to drive. And he is one of only two characters, I believe, to appear in every single episode because there were episodes right. that didn't have a lot of the regulars in it. Right. Not all at once, but here and there, there'd be episodes that didn't have one of the regulars. And I right. think it's Uncle Jesse's words of wisdom, kind of throughout right. many of the episodes it might serve as to kind of the, the life lesson if something was learned uh, right. in
1: in those episodes. Yeah, I guess a great way to describe Jesse is the way that uh, Luke describes Jesse to a character in a later season, that Jesse Jesse raised all of them on the good book with a whole lot of common sense mixed in. I think that's probably the best way to describe Jesse. Like, like I said earlier, he's a widower, so yeah. And, and Denver Pyle, I mean – I think you can throw him in that category. We always talk about Robert Fuller to get to our wrestling stuff. Is that guy that hit forty like, when he was twenty and then just never aged? I think mm-hmm. Denver Pyle was kind of like that because if you go back to the fifties, he start He was had a recurring role on the Andy Griffith Show, another great Southern based show that where he played Briscoe Darling, who was the the patriarch of a mountain family in the hills above Bayberry. So he's kind of the same role, isn't it?
0: Whereas I think John Schneider, not not to get too off track to to Bo, but John Schneider kind of fit the thing more like Harrison Ford, where he had 20s and 30s. He just aged to 40 and has just stopped and has been 40 years old ever since.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, he definitely looks older now than he did back in these days. But yeah, you're right. He hasn't aged much since, oh, smallville that was what 20 years ago <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so he's got to be in his 60s now and he still looks like he's maybe 45 if, if, if 40 but anyway mm-hmm. so i, I guess I, we've covered all the dukes uh, those are your heroes i guess we need to get to the, to the villains now and we've brought them up before and that would be that would be boss hog boss hog is his nickname his real name is jefferson davis hog or jd hog for short for those of you that aren't knowledgeable, Jefferson Davis was the President of the Confederate States of America, so <laughs> that is the that's where it comes from, and not a very popular name now no, 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 it's not, but uh, he wears all white an all white suit with a bow tie and a white white cowboy boots and a white hat and he was a short, portly man who had a voracious appetite who was portrayed by Sorrel Book, who was a well well uh, uh acclaimed stage actor had done like over forty Uh, Broadway plays by the time you got cast to do this and um, had, I think been nominated a couple of times for Tony's. I mean, he was a, most of the cast members say he was the absolute best actor of all of them. Just pure actor. Mm -hmm. And um, he, he is a crooked uh, county commissioner and fire commissioner. I mean, he pretty much runs the county I said he's he's from the wealthiest family in the county. He owns everything or holds the mortgage on just about everything in the county. But he is he's not your typical bad guy. He's not Darth Vader or Lord Voldemort or something like that. His are all about get rich quick schemes or ways to steal money. There's two things though that that, that Boss Hogg don't cotton to. He doesn't cotton to he doesn't cotton to to, to anybody besmirching the name of Hazard County. So there are a lot of episodes where outsiders will come in and Dukes and Boss Hog have to actually work together mm-hmm. to take out the bad guy for the good for the for the greater good of, of Hazard. And the second one. Which I think became more of a character trait as it went on as they realized this was going to – because the original show was on at nine. Later on, later seasons, it started running at eight and became more family-friendly because they realized they had a lot of, of success with kids. I mean obviously I was a big fan of it. You were being, we were both kids at the time. I, was, I said I was Bo Duke for Halloween one year. Mm-hmm. But he became – he did not caught into violence. He, 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 he never wanted anybody to get hurt during one of his schemes. And there that became a plot point sometimes. And and he just he just did not ever he in fact even said in one episode, he said if you got to hurt somebody or physically assault somebody to, to steal from, them, then you're not a very good crook. That's kind of Boss Hog's point.
0: <laughs> and Boss Hogg, I think, is another example of lawful evil. I mean, some might argue that he's not evil as much as he is selfish, but I think you you could say lawful evil because obviously he's an upholder of the law, so thus somebody who's supposed to follow laws but he did have these codes that he would not cross like you said the no violence he doesn't he, he'd never put a hit out on anybody or anything like that
1: no 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 right
0: and if he had to force to keep his word by doing the spit shake which became a, a trope in several episodes that. that
1: was part of the Ridge Runners. That was the, the Ridge Runners. Ridge Runners is another term for moonshiners, by the way, folks, because like I said these are mountainous, so you're running these crooked ridge roads at, at night with your lights off. Remember that? <laughs> right. But the Ridge Runners Association is like just a collection of all these old moonshiners and both Jesse and Boss Hogg who were frenemies growing up. They were rival moonshiners. In fact, one of my favorite episodes is episode 1 of season 2 called Days of Shine of Ro- Roses and Shine, instead of, of, of Roses and Wine. And it, they re they recreate a race between Boss Hog and Jesse to settle once for all who was the best ridge runner. But they like you said, that's where the spit shake first shows up. That's becomes a recurring thing. That's the only time when Boss Hog shakes your hand with the spit shake. Then he he won't even break that. That's just he can't do it. That, that he has some honor to him. I guess is what I'm trying to say.
0: <laughs> right, right, exactly. And that's what I was getting to with the tease a little bit before about Uncle Jesse having competition in his moonrunner days is yeah, boss was doing that as well. So JD Hogg's history is a little sketchy when it comes to the law because he did a lot of the stuff that the Duke Boys got busted for later. Mm-hmm. And it's also worth mentioning just for silliness's sake, because I think it only happened in one episode. We were talking about Sorrel Book being this great actor as mm-hmm. well as character actor. He had a twin brother named Abraham Lincoln Hogg. Now, Boss Hogg was of course corrupt. He always wore these nice white suits and he was driven around in that nice fancy Cadillac convertible. Well, Boss's brother was Abraham Lincoln Hogg, obviously the other side of the Civil War, and he had a black Cadillac and he was always honest and it was just the and wore all black. good Yeah. <laughs>
1: They called him the they called him the white the white sheep of the hog family because he was the only hog that was that was, <laughs> wasn't crooked. <great. laughs> That's one of my favorite episodes of all time. It's called uh, Ba White Sheep instead of Baba Black Sheep. <laughs> and uh, Sorrel Book is actually listed in the closing credits as guest-starring as Abramson gets opening and a closing <laughs> credit as starring and guest-starring. And uh, I know for, about Sorrel Book, and I'm talking about this, we probably need to move on to, to Roscoe, and I'll let you handle Roscoe, but uh, Sorrel Book really, really loved that character. According to, Fortunately, we lost him in 1994. He was the, the first of, of the cast members to pass away. And he loved the character because he understood it was probably the one that most people rec- recognized him for. And he would go to these fan conventions and the Duke Fest and all the stuff that has become a part of the major fandom of Dukes of Hazard, which is part of the reason we're covering it on Geekville. I mean, I think if you inspire a, a yearly fan fest that draws thousands of people, that's kind of geeky. He would go to these autograph sessions and he would go to these these festivals, completely dressed as Boss Hog, and he was such a dedicated method actor. He would stay in the Boss Hog persona the entire time, do <laughs> the accent because he's not because Sora Book's not from the south. In fact, very few of the cast members were from the South. He was from—I want to say—he was from Iowa, but I could be wrong. But anyway, he, uh, yeah, he, he, he would go and completely stay in character and take pictures with people, and he loved the role. And it, this, this required a lot because he, though Sorrel Book is, is is a heavier set man, he was not nearly as heavy as as they the, they wanted Boss Hog to be. So he had to wear a fat suit underneath his white suit to get the portliness they wanted. He was such a method actor. One of the traits of Boss Hog is. His, one of his favorite meals is raw liver and black coffee for breakfast. There's a scene, a couple of scenes. Sorrel Book is such a method actor, he said, Don't give me nothing fake. I want real raw liver. And he ate the real raw liver for these shoots. <laughs> That's how much of a method actor he was. But anyway, I guess time to move on to his to hit the other the other bad guy, his his uh, comrade in arms, so to speak, Roscoe.
0: Yeah, arguably the most popular character outside of maybe the, the Dukes themselves, of course, was James Best as Roscoe P. Coltrane. Now, we've already said that the Dukes were probably lawful good and that Boss Hogg is lawful evil. Roscoe, while he was an antagonist, I don't think was evil. He was just loyal to Boss Hogg because that's his his brother-in-law. And Mm. I think lawful neutral is a fair assessment for for Roscoe because because he did want to uphold the law. He just saw the dukes as lawbreakers but there's a lot of times we'll we'll get to it when we talk kind of like the standard episode so to speak where boss or roscoe and the dukes would have to work together to defeat the real villains and bring the real villains to justice and of course roscoe is depicted as Somewhat incompetent, even though he was supposedly one of the one of the better sheriffs around until like his I think they said he lost his penchant or something like that, and that 's why right right he 's working with boss I, but one of the recurring themes that happened in the vast majority of episodes is he 'd be chasing the Duke boys and they 'd make a jump or go on two wheels or something like that, got to avoid and to, to evade capture, and then Roscoe would crash in a very comical Slapstick fashion. And that that was just one of the things that, that was one of the most common tropes throughout the entire run of the series. And there were times I think if Roscoe thought the Duke Boys were wronged, like something bad happened to them that was unjust, he would probably stick up for them. And I think the other way is true. I think if Boss Hogg was wronged in an unlawful manner, the Duke's might be a little bit begrudgingly, because they personally don't like him, but they would stand up and make sure justice was brought about. But one of the biggest things about Roscoe, one of the most trademark things, is something that happened, I think, quite from accident. It was just from James Best being in the being in character. I think you said it had something to do with, with kids. But when he'd get excited, mm-hmm. he'd kind of go,
1: key, 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 key. Yeah, he, he said, James Best has said in interviews, as it became apparent that, that he was a fan of kids and they wanted to soften the character up, he kind of took a take that he, he, the way he portrayed the character was a 12-year-old playing cops and robbers in hot pursuit. Mm-hmm. And that was the voice he would do with his daughters when they were to, I'm going to get you. And that was a little laugh he would do. And that's where it came from. And he is one of the few cast members that actually is a Southerner. He's from Kentucky. James Best was. And we unfortunately lost him a year last year. And he was nearby me. He was in Hickory, North Carolina, which is about 30 miles north of Charlotte in the the mountain regions of North Carolina, running the playhouse up there. And they were doing a production of On Golden Pond. He was playing the same character that Henry Fonda played when he won the Oscar for that movie portrayal of that play. So, I mean, he was he was James Best, like Sorrel Book. I think when he took the role of Roscoe, he had something like over 500 roles in television shows going all the way back to the fifties and had been in like 40 or 50 films as a character actor. So he was once again, heavily, heavily respected. In fact, I think John Schneider said in an interview one time, he realized how far he had to go as an actor when James best in an, in an episode was told he needed to cry by the director. And he looked at the director. And was not kidding around. He said this completely non-plus. He said, Which eye do you want me to cry out of?
0: <laughs>
1: and he meant it and he could do it. That's when John started said, I have a long way to go in my acting chops. <laughs> 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 That's how good an actor James Best was. Or Jimmy Best as the cast liked to call right. him. And he one thing I need to mention, I think it's a good time as any as we talk about this, one thing I think it made the success of the Dukes. We talk about it with the walking dead on examining the Dead. We talk about it with the flare, with the Flareover shows on, on geek here on geekville, all the times that you will see all the documentaries out there and interviews. It is very obvious that these, it was an ensemble show, no doubt about it. These people really enjoyed working together. They really, really had a good time filming the Dukes of hazard and they formed lifelong friendships. And, all of them remained close to till, till till the ones we lost dying days. It's it's John and Tom both went on and had country music singing careers. And I believe one or both of them actually sang at a couple of the funerals of some of the of some of the cast members that passed away. Catherine Bach was extremely close to, to Jimmy Best till he died. She had started. She started having kids herself after Hollywood career was over just like eight ten years ago. And her daughter's called Grandpa Jimmy. He was like a like a second grandfather to them. That's how close that I think any television show, but especially ensemble pieces like Dukes of Hazard, when you have that dynamic, it just shows through on on through the camera and comes right out of the screen onto you. Do you agree with that?
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think it really is one of the reasons why the show ran for so long is obviously Tom Wolpat and John Schneider had chemistry as cousins and my understanding is they actually knew each other a little bit before yeah. they got cast. Yeah, cuz and they both had respect for each other because they they were both also aspiring musicians. I think I heard John Schneider tell the story like he saw Tom Wopat like walk into a a bathroom with a guitar slung over his shoulder and he's like, "Wow, this guy really ca- cares about his guitar." And that's like one of the things that they uh, hit it off with. But it, the same can also be said about James Best and Sorrel Book because they absolutely had uh, an unmatched chemistry on the show, and you could tell that they really did enjoy working with each other because they just are so entertaining together in
1: those roles and I think it really shows you're exactly right seth and 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 to 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 really drive that point home in this in the in the in a lot of the scripts, especially as time went on, they became so good working together and had such great chemistry sorrel book and james bested did, they didn't even write them dialogue. The script would just say sorrel james improv that's all it said so a lot of those funny back and forth you see where they're coming up with these crazy schemes they're just as we call it in wrestling when you do it the old school promo way you give me bullet points and i'll give you two minutes and put butts in the seats that's essentially what they did with sorrel book and james best just give us a minute and a half of something funny that sounds like roscoe and and boss hog and it always worked yeah. Yeah. yeah that usually ends with roscoe going oh i love it i love it i love it exactly <laughs> And to, to the to the one of the funny thing, if you watch the show after the end credits they'll always put up a title card for for Warner Brothers because it was a Warner Brothers it was filmed once it moved from George after the first five seasons and we'll get to this later they did start filming in, on the back lots in Burbank at, at Warner Brothers but if you watch it, it depends on what season you watch you'll either have uh, as the title card show and you'll have an audio of the laugh by Roscoe or you'll have Boss all going them dukes them dukes them dukes. Mm-hmm. So I think if you, if he, if he, if boss had a catchphrase, it'd be get them Duke boys. And if yeah. Roscoe had one, it would be his laugh or I'm in hot pursuit. <laughs> Those would be his catchphrases. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> well, I, there were two more characters I wanted to talk about and then some other ones, but I'll, I'll cover one. You cover the other. And there'd be the, the two major supporting characters. The first one would be Cooter Davenport played by Ben Jones, who went on after the show to actually become a US Senator. He is one of the Southerners on the show. He, he was, he's from Virginia. The Cooter character is – he also is another one they softened up as the time went. But he owns the local garage, has a garage, and he's the best mechanic in town. So with as many cars as they wreck and destroy in this show, he's pretty busy. In fact, they allude to in some episodes, Cooter just follows follows the General Lee around and and, and, and knows that the carnage behind it will be work for him. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Often being the patrol cars of, of the sheriff's department. But Ben Jones – was given a lot of leeway. I think he was one of the first members cast, actually cast members that they actually approved. Yes.
0: Because and I he, believe he was actually in moon runners. If I recall correctly, I
1: believe you, I believe he was, I believe he was, I believe he was. And, and Ben is, is they just said, he just went back home to Virginia and one of his buddies from high school was a mechanic. And he just looked at how he was dressed. And the guy gave him a couple of those cut off work shirts that Guder always wears. And he said, I took them and I rubbed them on a, on a mode on a auto on a, motor to get him a little grease on them and i i i took some I, took, I got a couple pairs of jeans at the store and scuffed them up and got them greasy and went and bought me a couple trucker caps and and grew my beard out and there you go he's i mean he is he is he is called many times in the show an honorary duke because it's mm-hmm. it's obvious that cooter shares the same moral standards and code of ethics they do he's a good old boy like they are Raised on, as, as as Hank Hank Jr. says, we say grace and we say ma'am. That's that's Cooter, just like the Dukes. Yeah, and uh, he often is their support, or actually co- completely involved with the Dukes in in upsetting the uh, schemes of Roscoe and Boss. Right. And Cooter, by the way, is one of my favorite characters. Now, there's a lot of controversy with that because this is this is this is not our our mature rated show. But cooter has a vulgar con- sexual connotation in today's day and age, and it, it it did at the time as a slang term for women's genitalia. That is not where cooter comes from. That's one, let me let me let me southernize y'all a little bit. Cooters are actually a type of turtle that are indigenous to this part of the country. They're they're a freshwater snapping turtle that I can't remember the scientific name, but we just call them cooters. And there's several different kinds. There's like North Red Alabama Cooters, and there's there's Blackwater Georgia Cooters. We have we have the Edisto Cooters here in South Carolina. They're just a snapping turtle that are freshwater, and I think that was the reason the character got the name was because Cooters kind of portrayed at times to be a little slow. You know what I'm saying
0: right. He he very much I think is one of those people that might have a brighter than normal IQ, but some of his instincts might not quite be the same i mean he, right. he's, he's got some street smarts to him but mm-hmm. he, he's not going to get any college degree at all
1: right and he grew up with luke he's older than Bo and daisy he grew up with luke. him and luke were buddies in high school they 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 were running buddies all their lives and cooter cooter if he had a catchphrase would how would be how he answered the cb crazy cooter <laughs> yeah that's right breaker one breaker one i may i may be crazy but i ain't dumb crazy cooter coming at you come back <laughs> and Ben Jones, that was an improv all by Ben Jones. That was not in the script. Right. So that's another thing you're going to find out a lot, and we'll get to that when I talked about the true southernness of the show. A lot of it for all the actors, there's a lot of improv. They got so good at understanding these characters and what worked, they just let them improv a lot. That's one of my favorite catchphrases in the whole show. I may be crazy, but I ain't dumb. Crazy <laughs> coming at you.
0: <laughs> you, know, you just triggered a question in, in my mind here. I think I know all uh-huh. the answers here, but you talk about all the CB use. I don't mm-hmm. think Cooter had a call sign. He, I think he was just... Crazy Cooter! Just, Crazy yeah.
1: Cooter, was, that was his handle.
0: But yeah, that was ev- his handle. All, all the Dukes, they kind of centered around around the sheep, because Bo and right. Luke were were lost sheep. Uh, Uncle Jesse was shepherd, and Daisy was Bo Peep. So a lot of times you hear, that, Shepard right. lost sheep, Shepard lost sheep. You know.
1: Yep, that was their handle. And, and Roscoe and, and and Boss didn't really have one, because they were usually talking on, the, on, on the, the... I think it's Channel 19 that's reserved back in those days for for law enforcement but but roscoe did call boss his fat little buddy a lot that was one of his little pet names for (laughs) boss hog my fat little buddy (laughs) i guess that leaves us one last major cast character and i'll let you handle that that would be uh enos straight
0: yes and enos actually was not on all the episodes he was my favorite of the deputies roscoe was always my favorite of the law enforcement characters because again he seemed like just kind of a cool dude trying to do the right thing.
1: Enos, I mean, heck, even even Jesse said in one episode, what happened to you, Roscoe? And at one time, you were a fair-to-middle-in-lawman.
0: Right, but Enos was definitely lawful good. He is arguably the most lawful good out of any of the characters, and there was always that kind of budding romance with, with Daisy because Daisy somehow could never keep a boyfriend uh, despite how she looked and acted, but that's beside the point. Enos, the best quote I can think of for Enos. is what I use for what I call the alignment posters. We've been talking about alignments here with Lawful Good and all that. And that's Enos as Lawful Good. And the quote is, well, it's not that I don't trust you all. It's just last time you hung me on a
1: wall. That was an episode where they were trying to get away and they fooled him and then they tied him to a chair and then hung the chair on the wall. That was a great episode.
0: (laughs) But Enos actually did get his own spinoff show. I don't think it aired on the same night. I could be wrong about that. But uh, it only lasted a couple of episodes. I don't think it even lasted a full season.
1: It lasted, it lasted a full season. It lasted a full season.
0: Okay. Uh, but I remember trying to watch it a, as a kid, and it, it just didn't seem the same, maybe because it was set in uh, California or something L- like that. L.A., yeah.
1: L.A., 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 yeah. It just didn't have the same charm. Right. Now, Enos is portrayed by Sonny Schroyer, and Sonny is another one of those that actually is a Southerner. He's from Valdosta, Georgia, and you can tell when he talks, that's his real voice. And he is described on the show as the oldest virgin in Hazard County. And Sonny Schroyer, if you talk to him, he kind of breaks into, he'll kind of go into character a little bit, and he's like, "It was awful hard with Daisy. A lot, a lot of cold showers. (laughs) 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 That's what got, that's what got Enos through. But Enos, I think Straight being his last name spelled like George Strait, the country singer, S T R A I T, I think that's he's pretty straight and narrow. I think you're right. I think in many ways he is an honorary Duke too. Because he grew up with Luke and Luke, or sorry, Bo, and Bo and him are the same age and went, went to high school together and played football and everything. I, he, just like I said, he says Grace and he says ma'am. He was raised the same way the Dukes and Cooter were. And he often is reluctant to go against Roscoe and Boss Hogg's schemes, especially when he came back from his own show. And that's the interesting thing. He did not believe that the Enos show would work either. Sonny Schreuer did not. Right. And Guy Walton, of course who created the show also created Enos and he got it written into his contract. He would only do Enos if he could come back to the Dukes after Enos was over for whatever reason. And after the one season run of Enos, he came back. So right. that was kind of, that was pretty smart on his part. I, you don't want to leave a hit show and then have your show bomb and not be able to go back. Right. That can happen. So that was pretty savvy on, on Sonny Schroyer's part, I think. And one
0: of the things I'll also add about Enos is as much as I liked the character, He is a perfectly great side character. He's a supporting character. I wouldn't even call him tertiary. He's a supporting character, secondary character, but he just did not fit as a lead in his own show. No, no, no.
1: And I think part part of the charm of him was this good old boy who was even more clean cut than the Dukes trying to do the right thing with all this corruption and insanity going on around him. And I can see how you. Well, I think that that worked for the Dukes, whereas Enos was more of a fish out of water story, a country boy in the big city. And so, it, I don't know if a country boy in the big city should be comedic unless it's an ensemble piece, like say the Beverly Hillbillies. That worked because you had four of them, and you had you had a great foil and, and Mr. What was Mr. Drysdale for them to play off of. But Enos never really had that in his own show. It was more about a, it was more of a fish out of water buddy cop show.
0: It really felt more like Chips than it did Dukes of Hazard.
1: Yeah, it was it was it was it was a much more comedic version of Lethal Weapon would be a good example. We come 10 years later. Yeah, that's fair. Veteran street veteran street cop from L.A. who was African-American paired up with 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 a white guy. This white guy, instead of being ex-special services, like like Mel Gibson's character, was just a good old boy from Georgia. So, it, yeah, I, I didn't mind Enos, but it, you're right; it did not have the charm that The Dukes of Hazzard had. And good on Sonny Schroyer for working it out to come back, because I think all of us that watched the show were very happy. We were almost as happy when he came back as we were when Bo and Duke came back. And we'll get to that in, in a little bit. In, in a little bit, before we get to the, to the, the imposter Dukes. But I wanted to talk about before we talk about the imposter Dukes, and then we'll move on to the cars. There were a lot of other supporting recurring characters that we're not going to go into great length about, but they were, I think, important for the flavor of the show. They had a lot of a lot of that salt and pepper on top of that sizzle of the steak. Lulu Hogg, who was Roscoe's sister Mm -hmm. and Boss Hogg's wife, played by Peggy Ray. She was great. She was she was also Daisy Duke's best friend. (laughs) So not all the Hogs were in Coltranes were after the Dukes. And she often she loved she loved Boss Hogg. And though Boss Hogg seemed like he wouldn't, Boss Hogg was very dedicated to her too. But she was a heavy set woman. I thought she brought a lot of flavor. Miss T- Miss Tisdale, who was played by Nedra Voles, was an older grandmotherly lady, but drove a dirt bike and pop wheelies all the time and ran. Had several jobs. She, mostly, she was the postmistress for Hazard County and delivered the mail. But she also she also was the archivist at the, the Hazard Gazette, which was the local newspaper. And she was really sweet on Uncle Jesse. Mm-hmm. And the other the other. Two I can think of would be Cletus Hogg, who was what well, replaced Enos as the deputy. He Why was, was Boss's
0: nephew, I believe, cousin, and, cousin,
1: okay. second cousin twice removed, and he was played by Rick Hurst. The only other cast member that was actually a Southerner, if unless, unless you count Whalen, and I do count Whalen as a cast member. Of course, Whalen was from Texas. Well, so was Rick Hurst. He was from Alabama. He was sorry, he was from Houston. So he was also much like, he was much like, like Enos. He was good at heart. He didn't like Duke's, he didn't like boss's scheme, but he's a little more loyal because there was family, but he also had a crush on, on Daisy. Like he wasn't as strong and I, I liked the cleanest character. I enjoyed the few episodes they had when Enos came back where the two of them were in the same patrol car together. Cause the, they're kind of fun, kind of fun play between these two country bumpkins.
0: And I can't help, but wonder maybe both on screen and off is maybe the budget was they couldn't each have their own car. So they had to split one.
1: <laughs> well they wreck so many who knows <laughs> <laughs> and the only other really major character that I think was recurring would be Sheriff Little
0: played yes. by Don
1: Pedro uh, Colley who was the only African American who was a regular on a show based in the south which a lot of people once again look at you funny and I'll talk about this more when we get to the true southerners of the show that region of the south I'm talking about there's, is not as heavily populated with African Americans as the, the coastal areas I was talking about but anyway uh, Don Pedro Colley was great he was big man he was he was a star of multiple black exploitation movies in the 70s and he was a, a very straight and narrow lawman who was the sheriff of, of the neighboring county chickasaw he knew that bo and luke could not cross over into, into into his county without breaking their probation and a lot of his scenes were him getting outsmarted by the dukes and being so big like a grizzly bear he'd get out and kick his car and the defender would fall off for the <laughs> I mean, he was this big gorilla bear of a man and, and and those were the the major recurring characters I can think of that, that that aren't major. But you can't talk about the characters without talking about the first nineteen episodes of season five. Yes. One
0: more moment before before you get before you get there, I'll I'll just add in my my two cents about the characters we mentioned. Lulu, I think was definitely a good person. I think she yes she loved Boss and Boss loved her, but she was also a stand-up woman for women's rights. So yes. even, even as far back as the Duke shows, she was standing up for women's rights in, in the late 70s and early 80s, which I think is a, is a great thing. So I'd probably call right. her lawful good. Like you said, she was Daisy's best friend. Cletus, I think, is, would probably also be lawful good. I didn't really write down much about Cletus just because I mm-hmm. was a bigger fan of Enos than I was Cletus. Sheriff Little, I think, was definitely lawful neutral. I mean, he, right. he upheld the law. But he had temper. But he had a temper.
1: Yes. Had a temper.
0: <laughs> yeah. And the last one to mention was a lot of comic relief, but it was Boss Hogg's nephew, Huey, who I right. think it's fair to say he's either neutral evil or chaotic neutral because he is clearly.
1: He's neutral evil.
0: Yeah, he's 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 more corrupt than than Boss was. And one of the most hilarious things was he would wear the white suits just like Boss, like he he's the mm-hmm. the the big high stepper or whatever and he gets chauffeured around like Boss would, but whereas Boss was in that beautiful 70s, 70, 71, I want to say it was an Eldorado or maybe a DeVille. Yeah. It was a DeVille. It was a DeVille. Um, Huey gets chauffeured around in a VW Beetle. In yeah, 1971,
1: Vette yeah. convertible, yes. convertible with with the steer horns on the front, just like right. the Boss's Cadillac.
0: <laughs> <laughs> right. So instead of the Cadillac with the big horns on the front, it's a Beetle with horns on the front. I always thought that was hysterical.
1: Yeah, I remind I, every time I see Boss Hogg's car, I reminded this line from a Jimmy Buffett song called "Brand New Country Star," and that's like in the chorus. He drives around in a Lincoln Continental, got the steer horns on his car. <laughs> mm-hmm. But anyway, I, I we were talking about catchphrases. Two catchphrases I forgot to mention that are very Southern, and I find it amusing because it was two of the guys that actually were Southerners, and they were improv were Enos's, which was possum on a gumbush. That was his. what he would always say when something was – he'd find it amazing. And Rick Hurst, his Cletus's, was buzzers on a buzzsaw. Mm-hmm. Those were both improv lines. Believe me, I've heard those before in the South. It's obvious. One's from Georgia and one's from Texas. Okay, <laughs> they're, they're real good old boys.
0: So I guess now. we'll go, yeah, onto the we have to talk
1: about talk about uh, the elephant in the room here, Koi and yeah. Vance. Should we flip a coin to decide who has to talk about Koi, who has to talk about Vance? I, I guess I'll I'll talk about
0: Koi because yeah. if I had to pick one out of them, it, it's to be the preferred. It, it would be it would probably be him. But let me preface this that this is by no means any disrespect to the actors. I think they did. Mm. The, as as well as could be expected, Brian Cherry and I forget. Christopher, May- Christopher Mayer. Christopher Mayer. Yeah, he passed a number of years ago. But they just didn't have that aforementioned chemistry with each other, let alone the other characters in the show that John Schneider and Tom Wolpat had.
1: Before we get going really heavy, let's explain what happened. What had happened was, and this wasn't the first time on the show. The late 70s was an interesting time for network broadcast television. This was the first time a lot of people, a lot of actors on hit shows like the Dukes of Hazzard. I mean, Dukes of Hazzard was a top five show. A lot, mm-hmm. a lot of times it was like number two in the ratings behind Dallas, which it was the lead in for. But this also affected like Robin Williams on Mork and Mindy. It affected Ron Howard on Happy Days. It affected Suzanne Somers on Three's Company. They were wanting more money. Our conditions were bad and the networks were used to this old system and, and the actors were starting to fight for their rights these are the ending days of contract players and movies so uh, earlier in the run of the show james best had left for a few episodes because he was appalled by the the conditions of the the dressing rooms he didn't have a good dressing room a good trailer and he got dirty more than anybody else because you talked about how often he comically would wind up in like mud or water in these car wrecks so and then they didn't even have a decent place for him to change so he missed like four or five episodes and then he came back. And then Ben Jones left for a few episodes cuz he had an argument with the over whether he should have the beard or not. The thing that he grew to look the part. But the biggest one was in between the filming of season 4 and season 5, the show had become so popular that there was a lot of merchandise out there. I mean, I had a Dukes of Hazard lunchbox. There were yes. toy cars, there were there were there were action figures, there were shirts, there were Halloween costume. anything you could slap a general Lee or a Confederate flag on or a picture of Daisy Duke, whatever, they yeah. sold.
0: Tonka trucks, Tyco tracks.
1: Hot, Hot wheels, matchbox cars. I mean, this is around the, this. is right after Star Wars had broken that mold on how you can merchandise a property like this with their toy line with Kenner. And Tom and, and John got together because they felt, and they've, they've both said since then and years later, that they handled it poorly. But they felt they were not getting enough royalties off of the merchandising. And they decided, just like if they were really the Duke boys... They were going to go in together in solidarity and and threaten to leave the show if they didn't get the money that's coming to them. And Catherine Bach was also going to join with them, mm-hmm. and they it's said, true. no, this is, some, this is something we have to do. If you leave the show, there ain't going to be no show for us to come back to. We don't want to leave the show. We want to stand up before we believe in and come back. Either they're going to capitulate before the season starts or – We'll figure it out, and we'll they'll bring us back halfway through the run, of the filming of the season. But right. if you leave, Kathy, Kathy, as all the cast calls her, if you leave Kathy, there ain't gonna be no show to come back to. Right. It gonna be risky enough leave taking out Bo and Luke, but taking out Bo, Luke, and Daisy, show's done.
0: Yeah, it, it would have tanked completely in the ratings had, had she left as well.
1: Right, exactly. So at their beque- at their behest, she stayed, and this happened pretty 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 short notice for the showrunners right before they were getting ready to film season five. And like you said, they had to quickly cast Brian Cherry and Christopher Mayer in these in these roles. And I guess you said you'll start with Coy. So now that we know why there's two new Duke cousins, Bo and, and, and Luke were written off the show and the, the season premiere of season five as going off to race on the NASCAR circuit. And in comes Coy and Vance. And you can start with Coy.
0: <laughs> yeah, he was definitely the replacement for Bo because he was the younger, blonde-haired guy. It's kind of funny. They took... The same tropes from both of the original Duke boys and just had two other people play the part. Really, the only thing that was different was Coy, the Bow replacement, would wear blue shirts. And then Vance, the replacement for Luke, would wear the yellow shirts, which is what Bo would wear. Right. But the roles were similar in that Coy was a little bit younger. And again, we're talking all these parents that, that that must have
1: had i mean uncle jason has had a lot of brothers and sisters but well they we those farm family i mean that's that's legit i mean it, it besides being moonshiners they did have a they were subsistence farmers and back in the day you had a lot of kids because you needed hands to run the farm mm-hmm. so it's it's not out of the realm of possibility i i dated a gal who's from that part of south carolina where there's a lot of moonshine the, the same areas we're talking about as hazard in the mountainous region her mom came from a family of 14
0: well wow. Yeah, well, my grandmother came from a, fa- a family of nine brothers and sisters, so yeah, I guess I guess it's possible.
1: And, she's, and, and her and her family's based out of Alabama, ain't they?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but there
1: you go. It's, 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 we believe in big families in the South, or at least we used to. We were farmers. It was an agricultural region,
0: right? But like Bo, Coy was the younger one, uh, a little bit more hot headed, a little bit more smiling, and he kind of tended to be more of the girl chaser than than Vance was. And did most of the driving. Yeah, yeah. And really that's about all I can really say cuz I think I only watched those episodes when they aired or if I'd recorded a few episodes on the beta tape player we had back in the day cuz once Bone Luke came back, uh we we kind of didn't really look back and it it's something we should touch on a little bit when when we get back to Bone Luke coming back. But that that's really my main memories of Coy is he was clearly the Bow replacement, the younger, mm. more impressionable. He did most of the driving and Tended to chase it the girls more,
1: yeah. And <laughs> was it was blonde, yeah. I and and Vance, I said he was a carbon copy of Luke, dark haired. He was in the Merchant Marines as opposed to the Marines. He was the one who usually came up with the plans. He was played by Christopher Mayer. I said he sadly we lost a few years ago. It just didn't work. And and, and I guess the best way is James Best talked about this at length in an interview that I saw him give to the, the local news in Charlotte a few years ago when he was talking about his on golden pawn run right before he passed away. And he talked about the coin Vance and he said, he really felt especially him and Denver pile and, and, and Sorrel book being the veteran actors they were in the cast did not accept Christopher and Brian. And it was, it was a shame and he was ashamed that they did it because they, it wasn't their fault and they didn't blame John or Tom either. They understood why they did what they did, but they should have, these were just two young guys who were trying to start a career in Hollywood and they did not accept them or help them enough. And I think that's, speaks a lot to the character of james best as a man to say that publicly i think that it, it for me like i said the chemistry wasn't there brian cherry who played coy is was a southerner he was from atlanta he was born and raised in atlanta and he is actually friends with john schneider and when they originally cast a show back in 78 he he auditioned for the role of Bo and just didn't get it john schneider got it instead so that's probably i don't know i'm speculating here i wouldn't be surprised if that's why he got cast as coy because, I mean, they, he probably was like number two or three on their list when they originally cast the show, if John mm-hmm. did not take the role. And I don't know where they found Christopher Mayer, but he wasn't from the South. He was from New York. And it showed because I, I know n- neither neither John or Tom are from the South, but they did a really good job with their dialect coach of sounding like they were Southerners. Brian sounded too Southern to me. Okay? It's like he was trying to overemphasize what his natural Southern accent was, and Christopher Mayer didn't even try. But at the end of the day, I think they were both. I mean, they were two young, aspiring Hollywood actors who were good-looking guys. They'd be a fool not to take a job on a hip show like The Dukes of Hazzard. And I don't, I don't nothing against either one of them. They did the best they could. I, I, I told you this is my thought of Coy Vance. When I texted you when we were when we were when we were prepping, I've been binging all the shows. To prepare for this, the all seven all seven seasons. As as I told you, I had to slog through the Coy Vance episodes. And it was a bit painful, but it wasn't that bad. So, anyway, all right, I guess we need to we need to move past Coy and Vance because when they left the show, they were never heard of or mentioned again. So we won't. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> And I guess the what the, the next part we're going to talk about is more Europe up your line is I think just as important as the characters, and they kind of were characters themselves were all the vehicles and the cars. Yeah. yeah. And uh, before we get into that, I just my
0: thought on why the the producers of the network may have cast coin vance instead of playing ball with tom and john early on out of the gate is maybe they thought well the kids love the car and we they'll watch for the car and the, the males like daisy so they'll watch it for daisy and we got two other good looking guys to fill the parts i think they were kind of thinking along that lines like it wasn't what we had just talked about with the the chemistry between the actors that it just it was the car more than anything and that really kind of proved to to be wrong because the the ratings did plummet when bo and luke left so uh, yeah
1: they went from they went from they went from being a top five show to a show that was lucky to get in the top 30 yes and we're talking the days before cable when there was only three networks because foxy didn't come about yet yeah so being in the bottom 30 being in the top 30 was not good this,
0: yeah, this would be the days in in my youth watching the big wooden Zenith TV that was in our shag carpeting living room. There were like five channels. There was two, five, seven, nine, eleven, and thirty two was fuzzy.
1: <laughs> and, I, and I mean, this is how this is how rushed it was. And part of the reason I, this I think this is a good example of sometimes executives just need to make sure the lights stay on and and, and, and sign the checks and let the, let the creative people do the show. I think that's a great example of this here, Like you said, they did not take into account. All they saw was, like you said, the cars, the good-looking chick, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. They didn't take into account the chemistry to the point where it's documented that they essentially told Christopher Mayer and Brian Cherry. They gave them a whole, all the old episodes to watch these and try to act like Bo and try to act like they, – they want them to be carbon copies. They didn't understand it was the actors, not the characters or the look. And some of the early scripts, the like first three or four scripts of season five, they never even retyped them up. They just literally had somebody go by hand, scratch out Luke and put in Vance, and scratch out Bo and put in Coy on the scripts. I mean, that's it. They had they were given the scripts that were originally written for Tom Wolpat and John Schneider. So they like James Best said in that interview I, I mentioned earlier, they didn't have a chance. They were they were doomed from the jump because of just how poorly it was done.
0: So that brings us to the next section, and probably next to the stars, the most iconic portion of the show, and that's all the different cars that were that were in the show. Obviously, the one we would talk about the most throughout the years, the one that's probably the most iconic, is the General Lee itself. Right. Uh, betwe- I think really between Duke's Bullet and Fast and Furious, I think that late 60s Charger kind of has the corner on the geek market, but the, uh, the General <laughs> Lee was a 1969 Dodge Charger. Sometimes they would use a '68 because if you look closely, you could you, you'd see the changes because the 1969 Charger had the flat tail lights and a split in the right. grill, while the '68s had no split in the grill and had round tail lights. So sometimes for the for the crash cars, yeah, that was the major
1: change was the back tail lights and tail light grill. Yeah, yeah.
0: Uh, so
1: so that's why if you look
0: closely for some of the jumps, uh, you'll see that it might actually be a different year. Now, I think out of the manufacturing plant in 68 or 69, the Chargers, I want to say, had a 383, maybe a a 440 in it. But obviously, the General Lee didn't have a stock motor in it. I think Cooter had actually built the engine for it.
1: Yeah, the ones that they actually used in the show were the 383s. They mentioned a couple times around the show that it's a 440 that's been bored out and, and toyed around with. So it's the bigger of the two engines. And I believe that it's never really quite shown. I know that that came with either four on the floor or, the, or, or a three-speed automatic that was on the floor. So they never really show. Sometimes when they show the, the, the close-up of the feet, they'll show it. It looks like it has a clutch. And sometimes it looks, it doesn't. It looks like it's an automatic. So there was some continuity issues there. I, I would think if it was a stock car, which is what General Lee was supposed to be, it would be manual. It would not be automatic. Don't you agree?
0: Yes, yes, absolutely. Pretty much across the board, race cars are manual transmission. Because what you're doing. You can uh, actually get better performance out of it than an automatic.
1: Yeah, right. There's a reason why, and I know this is odd, in 2018, I drive a stick because I can actually get better fuel mileage out of a stick than I can out of an automatic because I know how to shift right because I've been driving a stick all my life. I believe you. Yes, it's true. (laughs) I heard there's that it's a little Toyota pickup truck with, like, that, 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 that R22 engine that gets great gas mileage to begin with. But, mm-hmm. <laughs>
0: but anything else about the General, or should we move on?
1: My opinion, greatest greatest television car ever. I know people talk Kit. People will talk the Red Tomato on Starsky & Hutch, Dragula, Batmobile. Batmobile, yeah. Yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I, I know I'm looking at the rose color. The General Lee is the greatest television car of all time. Just, that's Crazy Train. <laughs> mm-hmm. Jerry Rushing's car was named Traveler which was actually Robert E. Lee's horse. And that was going to be the original name of the General Lee. They thought General Lee had more of a ring to it. As a matter of fact, Jerry Rushing, until he died, was trying to self-produce a documentary about Moonrunners and Dukes of Hazard, and his play in it called Traveler. You know how they got the horn?
0: I just assumed it was because of Dixie.
1: They were out location scouting in Covington. And they had stopped at the same, to eat at the same place. No, it was in Conyers. So the whole cast was there, and Guy Waldron was there, and, and Paul Baxley and all them were eating at the same place. They had sent Catherine Bot to say, Look, see, we'll see what they're wearing. I, I told that story. See what those girls are wearing. That's what you need to wear. And they were walking out after having lunch, getting ready to go shoot again or to find more locations. And some guy comes barreling down the state highway in front of there and like, and like an, an, a Mustang and hits his horn. Good old boy. And it's that horn. They jumped in their car and tracked him down the road and, and stopped him and said, where did you get that horn? And he told him and they went and bought one. <laughs> but the next car
0: that I don't think it might have been the second most featured because the second most featured probably would have been Daisy. But there was the aforementioned Cadillac convertible that boss always oh, awesome. rode around in. he almost always was chauffeured and just
1: right. was just kind of a thing added there for for extra oomph. And now, on, a, on occasion, you know, they would let him drive. And you do have to remember that, even though I think it fit his character to be chauffeured around. He was a great Ridge runner and moonshiner in his day. So they sometimes they would let Sorrell book drive yes. to kind of remind you, I think, that 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 Boss Hogg could drive. He was I mean, he was he was a hell of a moonshiner in his day.
0: Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of tell where along the run of the series it is based on some of the cars that are being driven, like I said. And that's because in the first two seasons it might have I think it was the midway through the second season Daisy drove what I thought at the time was a Dodge Challenger but I believe you said it was a Plymouth Roadrunner what that's really just the Plymouth version
1: of a Challenger anyway which I think what what was confusing you is there were a couple of times they could not find a Roadrunner so they essentially got a Challenger and just put the black Roadrunner stripes on it that's probably what threw you that's probably what you're remembering from your youth
0: yeah that that, that very well could be but halfway through the second season Daisy got a Jeep, which I probably liked the Roadrunner or Challenger better, but I think it fit Daisy's character a little better to have a Jeep because she did kind of yeah. like the outdoors and all that.
1: Yeah, It was a CJ7 and it like the General Lee had a name. It was called Dixie it had Dixie on, on the side of the, of the hood and had a big Eagle on, on the hood It was white mm-hmm. convertible or so- soft top with the top was usually off. And Uncle
0: Jesse drove uh, a Ford F-Series pickup. I think that seemed to change models from year to year. I don't think it was ever actually depicted as being different trucks. But if you look closely, you'll kind of see mm-hmm. around the fenders or the doors that it's a different mm-hmm. model car. I mean, I didn't notice when I was a little kid, but around the time you really start getting into cars, you notice things like
1: that. So- right. But all, it was always the mid-70s F-Series, which, once again, I've been driving stick all my life. I learned how to drive on a 67 Ford F-250. F- 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 so there you go, the old granny shift where you started in second gear because first first gear was for low hauling, and there was no power steering. It had those huge steering wheels. That, that's what I learned to drive on. Mm-hmm. So I've been driving stick all my life. I used to always tell everybody. People would ask me, "What did you learn to drive on?" Uncle was with truck, just an older version of it because his <laughs> was like a 71, 72. Mine was a sixty-eight. But <laughs> yeah, I may I may I may have lived in the big city like Denver. And I may like heavy metal and classical music and all that. There's a lot of good old boy and crazy train. I'm still a Southerner at heart. Okay. <laughs> I, learned, I learned to drive on a stick shift pickup truck. Okay.
0: <laughs> Another vehicle that changed a lot during the course of the show, which I think there could be a simple explanation for it. I don't think it was ever actually explained on screen, but Cooter would drive a tow truck and it would be, this is back in what would be called the slingback tow trucks. And anybody who remembers the eighties, has seen one of these tow trucks because it was the kind that would have the big long—I don't know what the material would be—but but, but uh, kind of a really strong plastic or rubber, and that's where you would roll and tow the front or back part of the car on. It would get you would get backed up
1: on that. You could roll the wheels up on it, and of right. course you would usually roll. You could you could back it up and put the, re- the rear wheels on it. And most of these cars back then were, of course, rear wheel drive. They weren't front wheel drive like we have today, right? That was where. That was, in my opinion, is where 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 automotive engineering screwed up when they turned engine sideways to put the transmission in a different place to get more. Uh, anyway, I'll yeah. shut up now. That's another topic for another time. Exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about as a car guy. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Absolutely. Because
0: when when you are towing a car, you don't want to have the drive wheels on the ground because then that would spin the drive shaft and thus would spin the right. motor and a lot of bad mm-hmm. things would happen. So that's why a lot of older cars. When they were towed back in those days, they would be towed backwards with the rear yep. wheels in the air because the the back right. wheels would be the 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 driving wheels.
1: Yeah, and then he also had a couple of what they call lift backs, which what w- they were instead of having the rubber supports. Which, by the way, it's the same. It's rubber, and it's the same kind of rubber that's that they make tires out of. It just doesn't have the radials okay. in it, so it's got a little bit more give in it. But it's a commercial industrial strength rubber. Liftbacks were the ones that were had a hydraulic that would go down. They had like two forks on a forklift coming out, and you could pick up a car by the side if you wanted to and carry it behind you like a forklift. He had a couple of those too in there in the round of the show.
0: But I think it's fair enough to deduce that since he was a mechanic, he would have access to these different types of trucks, and he just may not have formally owned them. He may just have them be cycled
1: around through. Right, other other mechanics, if that makes sense. Well, when when you brought that up when we were when we were doing the pre pre stuff for the show, I was kind of paying more attention to that as I was watching the episodes. I would notice that. I mean, he had a little bit of every make. He had a, he had an International Harvester, he had a, a GMC, he had a Ford, he had Chevys. I did notice that most of them on the side of the on the on the driver side door would have a little logo that said Hazard Garage, Proprietor Cooter Davenport, and then a num a number next to it, which leads me to believe he had multiple trucks. They were fleet cars. which you follow I am saying.
0: Yeah. And one of the other things about Cooter and his trucks and all that, and the hats he wore, I mean, obviously the Caterpillar logo was was big in those days for construction equipment. Sometimes Cooter would wear a hat that says dog in the same kind of font as cats. Right, right.
1: And sometimes they'd have a little feather stuck in the, in the dog some, on some episodes. But he did have multiple. but They always were trucker caps that were covered in grease and beat up. I love Cooter. He's one of my favorite characters. So I, I don't know if I mentioned that earlier. <laughs> Crazy Cooter coming at you. <laughs> Absolutely believable in that role. And the last yes. thing to talk
0: as far as cars go were the cop cars. And, again, you can kind of see – where along the lines of the show is by the cars that are being driven because early on i want to say they were using monaco's which was the Bluesmobile right, right. And, and blues brothers right but then later i think around the time coin vance started that's when pretty much across the board all the cop cars were mid to late 70s pure Furies. yeah
1: yeah, and that, that that was that. my understanding through my research was just a matter of ease of getting a hold of them. That somehow they had gotten a whole bunch of those Furies early on, kind of like, like you talked about the Blues Brothers. If anybody doesn't know, the reason all, they had that huge wreck scene in the Blues Brothers was because Chicago Police was actually getting a whole new fleet of cars. And so they either got them for free or bought them really cheap because they, they didn't care anyway. So right. they were able to wreck all those cars. But it was the same type thing. I think they bought like a whole fleet of old of old Furies early on in the run of the show, from some police department or something, and then over the course of the show, they wound up wrecking them and totaling them all. So it was just easier to get mid mid seventies Furies at that point than it was to try to get early seventies. And there's once you paint them white, put the put the put the the lights on top of them and the and the, the logo on the side. They're not that they're they're to the casual viewer. There's no difference, you know.
0: Right, right, absolutely. And I don't think I've ever told anybody this outside of my family, believe it or not, but. A childhood friend of the family, she actually drove a late 70s white Plymouth Fury. So whenever that family would come with a visit, of course, what would go through my mind
1: is, what, are they coming with Roscoe? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Where we're talking about the cars, I, I mentioned them earlier. Probably the best time to bring up Paul Baxley, who, like I said earlier, was the stunt coordinator. Many people, especially Ben Jones, involved with the show, always sing his praises. Now, where the Dukes was different than most, in fact, any show at the time, they had a second unit. They were the first television major television show to have a second unit. That's pretty common today, but back then they were the first. And for those of you who don't know what a second unit is, a second unit is, this, is the second group of directors and cameramen who go out and shoot the establishing shots, the, the landscape shots, the stunts, that kind of stuff. The stuff that may not involve the principal actors. Right, or close-ups, exactly, and dialogue and things like that. And Paul Baxley was the director of the second unit and they were the only show to have a second unit. And they had a huge budget because of all the cars that we're talking about. And Paul Baxley, I mean, he would go out and find, especially when they were in Georgia in those first five episodes, he'd find just the absolute right landscape to fit what they were looking for. And, and the fight scenes were not as good, but they weren't bad. But the car stunts they did on this show and that Paul Baxley and his sons and nephews were the stunt men on, were insanely awesome. Paul Baxley had been around a while. He had, I mean, he had gotten his start in television as the, the stunt coordinator on the original Star Trek. He was the body double for for William Shatner as Captain Kirk. So there's some geek cred right there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the stunts they were doing—it's hard to, today with everything being CGI—they can get away with a lot. These were practical stunts. They were jumping real cars, and it was expensive because he, he, Paul Baxley has said, "You don't understand." Every time we jumped a car, it was totaled, right? It wasn't the jump. It was the landing. But So that was, that was always a, that you had to just suspend disbelief that they could jump the general as much as they did in these cars and they would, they wouldn't break the axle. But if you pay close attention, you'll see the axle or the, or the suspension just go out totally when they land. And those jumps aren't easy because we were talking about the engines in the front were all the weight. You had to put weight in the trunk or in the back seat to create ballast. So they would stay level for the landing and, some of the stunts they did, the famous really long stunt in the opening credits where they jumped the big, huge river gorge, mm-hmm. that at the time, and it stood for a long time, was the longest practical car jump in stunt history, and that was a regu- just a regular old stunt on the show that was in the opening credits, and some of the stunts they did were just amazing when you think about it, where they would jump two cars heading toward each other and have them crash nose to nose in midair, jumping cars and land them in trees, jumping the general and having it land on top of another car to stop it. And then as the as the show run went on, there wasn't just cars. They brought in helicopters and ultraglides and motorcycles and this. The, the, I I guess can't praise enough the stunt work on this show. It was definitely big budget Hollywood movie level for its era. Do you not agree with that?
0: Yeah, I agree. And like we said, this was a top ten show. I think when it was canceled in the seventh season, it was getting something like. I want to say 13 million viewers. I, I think the peak was the second season where it was in the 20s. But, yeah, I mean, they were still getting 13 million viewers in 84 or 85. It's kind of hard to believe that the show went off the air shortly before Marty McFly stepped into the DeLorean for the first time. But right. it, it was
1: still a show that a lot of people were watching at the time. Exactly. It just, I think that's part of the reason why is you didn't have to go to the movies to see the stunts. You could turn your, your television on every Friday and see these Like I said, this is the days before CGI. These stunts they were doing were amazing at the time, you know? Right. And I think it's also possible
0: that maybe one of the reasons why it was canceled was because of that budget. I mean, you could get another show, I think, trying to think along the lines of what a executive might think. But for less money, if you can build or show a sitcom that doesn't have nearly the budget, well then, gosh, you're making a whole lot more money
1: with the same amount of people watching. Right, exactly. And, and by the by, one of the reasons that I've heard bandied about was and, and towards the end of the run of the show, they started using miniatures for the stunts. And it, it was pretty obvious. And that was mm-hmm. a disappointment to Paul Baxley and, and also a disappointment to, the, to a lot of the cast because it just did not look as good. And part of that was Kit. And Knight Rider had started by this point. And they were doing all theirs with miniatures. Because can you imagine trying to replace one of those modern cars? And it right. just it didn't get very expensive. I mean, they. rumor has it, and and numbers are sketchy, they used over 300 Dodge Chargers and over 500 Monaco's and Furies. just those two, just those three makes and models, during the seven-season run of this show. Because they would total so many in the stunts. That's not counting how many times did they total the Cadillac, how many trucks did they wreck at Jesse's, the Jeep got wrecked, they destroyed the, the, the Roadrunner. I mean... They probably destroyed well over a 1,000 cars in the seven-year run of the show. Don't you agree? Yes,
0: absolutely. Because like you said, every time a car like that would jump, it would get totaled. So they'd have, they'd have to go through even just generals. Sometimes they had to go through three generals just for one
1: episode. Right. I mean, that was that was the exact quote by Paul Baxley was, understand me, every time the general went in the air, that was a totaled car. That was, a, that was another general. And there were episodes where they'd have, what, three, four jumps in one episode? Mm-hmm. Do the math. Mm-hmm. All right, and that's
0: pretty much got got all my list for notable cars.
1: Uh, I don't know if you had any others you wanted to talk about. Mm-mm, mm-mm. I one thing I did want to talk about on the show, once we, as we get away from cars, this being a show in the late seventies, early eighties, there were a lot of guest stars on this show. Yes, that went on to be a lot to, to, to a lot more notoriety. Young up and comers, and they also had a lot of established actors, character actors, and people that had come along. Uh, I think the list is pretty impressive, don't you? Yeah. One of my favorite villain actors, actually two of my
0: favorite villain actors who were guest stars in episodes, the first being Charles Napier. Blues Brothers I, again. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, the lead singer of the good old boys. And he just had bit character roles, was actually quite a good character actor. And another one is William Smith, who was almost always a heavy in... Some TV show. Right. He, he there was just about every TV show at some point. I think had him in it, but he may have had the highest profile role as the nemesis to Clint Eastwood's Philo Beto in any which way you can. Mm-hmm. But he actually, for one TV show, did play a good guy for the western called Wildside. And mm. the other name that I wanted to bring up, and there, there's others that we'll go over, and that's Stephen Williams. Who might be best known in the '80s as he was the police captain for 21 Jump Street, which launched launched the career of uh, Johnny Depp, but he was a villain for at least one episode. And again, Blues Brothers, he was the black cop that had the white partner with the mustache that chased the chased the Bluesmobile a couple times through it, and until they totaled their car, <laughs> right. And he had the famous line where John Candy was in the back seat reaching for the CB. And he'd say, "Uh, what number are we? And Stephen Williams would say, five, five. Like, he's so pissed that he just is not showing any emotion anymore.
1: Yeah. William Smith, I probably most remember him from, he he got an Emmy nomination for Rich Man, Poor Man, which was a miniseries on ABC in the early 70s. But the one I most remember him for was the original Red Dawn, not that god-awful remake. He played the Russian, he played the Soviet heavy who was brought in from Moscow to hunt down the Wolverines. Had grown a mustache at that point and was had a very Charles Bronson-esque kind of vibe to him. You know saying? And an impressive mustache. And had one, had one of the coolest deaths in that movie when he's tracking down Patrick Swayze's character at the end. And, and, he said, and he said, got you. And it was actually a fake out by Patrick Swayze. Patrick Swayze turns around and shoots him with his daddy's 40, 44 mag. And he says something to him like, I win. He goes, no. I'm from here. I win, or something like that. Like this is my home. I'm defending it. Great, great. They 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 wind up shooting each other. And well, Patrick Swayze doesn't die right away. He finds Charlie Sheen's character his brother, and they it's alluded to that they freeze to death and bleed out from their wounds. But anyway, that's Steve. Now Stephen Williams, for those of you that listen to our sister podcast, that's hosted by, podcast hosted by me, Examine the Dead. Know Stephen Williams for Creighton Duke, who was. The main protagonist to Jason Voorhees in the ninth installment of the Friday the 13th franchise, the first new line one. That would be Jason Goes to Hell the final Friday. He's a bounty hunter who's hanging after, after Jason, and a lot of what has become considered canon within that franchise and lore had not been established in the first eight movies. His character established them in that movie. So Stephen Williams got some good geek cred. <laughs> 21 Jump Street, Blues Brothers, Friday the 13th. Absolutely, yeah. And Dukes of Hazard. But I mean, some of the other ones I wanted to mention, I think that have geek crossover. You said you didn't even remember he had guest starred, but was Jonathan Frakes or Frakes? How do you pronounce his name?
0: Yeah, Frakes. Yeah, and I actually saw him on an episode long before Trek of Voyagers, the time travel show that only went for like one
1: year. Right. He also played a bad guy in the miniseries North and South to keep a southern theme going. He played a corrupt older brother of George Hazard, the northern main character, hero character. Anyway he plays he plays another nephew of uh, boss hogs uh, other than Huey uh, played by Jeff Altman another one of these actors that went on to be do other things uh, but he he actually wins the heart of Daisy until it's revealed that he's actually just as crooked as the rest of the because he's very suave and charming unlike unlike boss hogg and uh, until it's revealed that he's actually part of a counterfeiting ring but in the end they even though he does go to jail for his part in the counterfeiting ring he does come to the end of that episode while defending Daisy against his cohorts who wanted to kill her because she knew too much. So that's kind of a recurring theme. There's a lot of redemption in the show or that the bad guys aren't true black hats. They're kind of gray hats, wouldn't you say? Yes. <laughs> some other ones I can think of. Ernie Hudson. Mm-hmm. Yes. yes. Winston Zedmore. He played a Heavy in one episode. Richard Mull had a recurring, played like two or three episodes, it would be Bull from Night Court. Played a, a, a hillbilly moonshiner from Tennessee, about 50 miles away from Hazard named the Bodries, he was uh, Milo Bodry, who they tried to force in one episode, I think it was the season finale of season five, tried to force Daisy to marry him in a shotgun wedding. Robert, Ald, Robert Ald, Alda, who was the uh, father of Alan Alda, Hawkeye from MASH, which is my favorite show, the only show I like more than Dukes, who was a very well-respected and established actor and director of television at the time. He plays an oil tycoon, and he's actually, his character's actually the one that gave Daisy Dixie, the C7 Jeep we're talking about. Mm-hmm.
0: James Avery, who is probably mm-hmm. best known for being the, the, the father figure of Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, but yep, if you're yeah. an 80s child and didn't know this, it might blow your mind a little bit. For the first several seasons of the animated teen, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles show, he was Shredder. So he was the Shredder. Yeah, That's right. Yeah. But some of the other names, another great villain, although he's played good guys before, Clancy Brown.
1: Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. Yep.
0: Gerald McCraney, probably best known for Simon and Simon, and I believe he was on Major, Major Dad. Major
1: Dad, yes, yes. Yeah, the real life, the real life husband of Dixie of uh, Delta or uh, Delta Burke from Designing Women. Yes, and Dick Sargent, who's probably best known for I yes, Bewitched, Bewitched. They were the two. Th- yeah, they were the two. They were the two husbands. Yes. The Dick Sargent and Dick Dick York, yeah. Sergeant York. Yeah, no coincidence.
0: I, <laughs> I, I got my magic. 60s comedies sitcoms <laughs> mixed up
1: yeah. But, yeah. you're thinking larry hagman you're thinking, yes. thinking jr now now completely off topic but like i said earlier that dukes was the lead in for dallas and they were usually one two in the ratings on friday nights for cbs how do you go from playing the ultimate baby face as 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 colonel what's his name on dukes on dream of, i dream of genie into the ultimate heel as jr you on dallas that's acting chops. right, right. That, that's acting chops. but anyway
0: Last couple names as far as guest stars, Henry Gibson, a very mm-hmm. big character actor, also a Blues Brothers Connection. He was the Nazi leader. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh,
1: Pat Buttram. Yeah, that Pat Buttram. I can't really do the voice very well, but yeah. that, that, yep. that, that iconic voice. I believe maybe William Sanderson might have had, had a guest starring role. William Sanderson was, was one of the Daryls from, from New Heart and was also the sheriff the first, two, the first two seasons of True Blood. I believe he was on there. I'm Daryl's my brother, brother, Daryl. Those, mm-hmm. I think, yes. was one, I believe he was on there. Uh, what, some of the guest stars that they had though, th- were actually current country music stars of the era. And they experimented with this about the middle of season two. And the first time they had one, it was actually the Oak Ridge boys. And it was at the beginning of the episode, but then later on when they would do it and they kind of stopped them about season five, they stopped doing them, but they did have one more in season seven. And I'll talk about where, what it was, it was a speed trap thing where the, the, the script wasn't quite long enough to fill out an hour. So they get a local, they would get a, a big name country star to come on and perform either a country standard or, or one of their hits. And that would be the last segment. It would be at the boar's nest and everybody'd be there and they would have to perform for free at the boar's nest to get out of the speeding ticket for the speed trap that Roscoe and Boston set up. And the list of country stars that they had on for these were pretty impressive. They were at Johnny paycheck they had buck owens they had the Oak Ridge boys twice they had donna fargo they had dotty west they had who am i leaving out i'm leaving out freddie fender
0: yeah uh, um, Orbison. if you didn't say it already Roy, and... Roy, Roy,
1: Roy there were three episodes that were a little bit different that involved country stars where they weren't speed traps as much as they were they were actually part of the actual episodes and 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 the and the gibson Episode you you were talking about that was the first one to have a country song. It was called "Find Loretta Lynn," and Loretta Lynn was actually at, played herself in the care and, and wound up performing at the end of the show at the Boar's Nest. There was another one that, uh, that had Mickey Gilly in it where he performed two songs. The first one was actually was actually him him performing at at like the the fair in the in, in the in the town in the town square. But then he gets caught in the speed trap on the way out of town and has to come back and perform, and he does All the Girls Get Prettier Clothes in time, which is probably his biggest hit. And then the last one that I can think of like that is one of my favorite episodes. It is, I think it's the second episode of season seven. It's called Meet and Jennings because if you think about that great song we played at the beginning, we told you there were two versions to The Good Old Boys, the theme to Dukes of Hazard. There's a different version that was released as a single, and then it, I think it went to number two on the country charts or maybe even number one. I believe it was number one, yeah. But there's the, the third verse is different because if you watch the opening credits, all you ever see – well, in season one it was – it was I can't think of his name right now, but he was one of the Whalers, which is Waylon's backup player playing acoustic. But from season two on, it was a shot from the neck down of Waylon sitting there playing that iconic 1954 Telecaster with that beautiful leather, black and white leather customization he had on it at the start of the show. And so the, the lyrics he changed were, I'm just a good old boy. My mama loves me. But she don't understand why they keep showing my hands and not my face on TV. And that kind of came a running joke with Waylon. But a lot of the fan mail coming in were saying, why don't we ever see the balladeer? We only hear his voice. We only hear his voice. And so they finally wrote him in, and he had a whole he had a whole episode based on him, and he wound up performing. And you find out in that episode that he actually is longtime friend of the Dukes. He's known the Dukes for a long time. And I believe that because we didn't talk about – we talked about characters. I think we both talked about off-mic – we agree that Waylon was as much a cast member as any of the other people we saw on camera all the time, right? Right, because you
0: heard his voice several times in every single episode, so that makes him a cast member in my book.
1: Right, and and I think for me, and I'm not saying this because I said earlier, Waylon's my favorite country star of all time. I think you cannot downplay the importance of Waylon and what he brought as the balladeer to the show. As a Southerner, he brought a real Southern charm and colloquialism to the show that wouldn't have existed, and he would talk about in interviews. He goes, he goes, he, w- he was talking to Ralph Emery, who's a very famous country musician and and interviewer that works at the Grand Old Opry, and he did an interview, a long sit down and interview with Whalen, where well, Whalen talked at length about this, and he even told Ralph Emery, "You, I'm embarrassed to tell you how much they were paying me for what little work I was doing." But he would do these on the road. They'd send him to him, and just and he had a place he lived. He had a house in California, and a house in Nashville at the time they'd send him the scripts and he'd go to record studio and just record his parts. And then they would just edit them in. And sometimes he'd do them on the tour bus. Cause he would be on tour. I mean, he would just wherever he was. And Waylon's character. Why I talked earlier about the improv. He's another example. He would get so upset because he's these excuse, excuse my language here, Seth, no offense. These Yankee writers would send him what they thought a Southerner would say and a Southerner would sound like, and he got to the point where he was so mad. They would write was like W U Z. He's like, if you want me to say was, I'll say was. You ain't got to spell it that way. I'm from Texas. I sound like I'm Southern. Just just write it. And Shooter Jennings, his son, has talked about it. He's gotten some of these old scripts. He goes, some of this stuff was just so cornball that these guys wrote. His daddy just improved it. They would just – got to the point where they would send him a script and go, okay, here's the scene. Give us a Southern colloquialism that would fit the description of this scene. And that's what he did.
0: Which is pretty amazing when you think about – like I said, you, you hear him multiple times in the same episode, so – Uh, He definitely, I think, should be more qualified as a regular on the series rather than than a guest.
1: He he did get an official guest starring, though, in that one episode. But one other guest, uh,
0: very briefly, is Dennis Haskins, who was in a couple episodes, but he is best known, at least for my generation, as being Mr. Belding on Saved by the Bell.
1: Right. The Charles Napier episode, you talk about Charles Napier, is the first one you brought up. That's one of the funniest episodes you could ever ever see, where they have... James Best and Sorrel Book dress up in drag to pretend to be Lulu and, and Daisy to fool these these jewel thieves. To see Sorrel Book and James Best and, and pantyhose and high heels and wigs is, is hilarious. It, it it shows you how good their chemistry is. When James mm-hmm. Best looks at, looks at Tom Wopat, he says, I am prettier than Boss Hogg, ain't I? Anyway, I'm sorry. You brought up Napier, and I remembered that episode. <laughs> yeah. So I can't really think of anything else to talk about except because we've been going on for a while. I can see how much we love this show. Maybe just the legacy and, and the mem- our our fondest memories of the show.
0: Yeah, and just to prove that I how well I know the show, despite I me mean, not watching episodes re- recently like like you did, Train, this is, by my recollection, what a typical episode would be like. Because I said at the top of the show, TV was just done differently where all episodes were pretty much – Standalone, so they could be shown in just about any order, except maybe the mm. uh, the first and last episodes. But uh, now they don't have the long storytelling across entire seasons. But occasionally there'd be two parters, so which which would more complicate things further. But a typical Duke's a Hazzard episode would start with Roscoe chasing the Duke boys around, and they do a jump over something, and Roscoe would, would crash. Then the no-good outsiders would ride into town in a separate scene, and almost every single time they're driving one of those aforementioned Plymouth Furies. Meanwhile, Boss will share his latest villainous plot with Roscoe, usually over some insanely outlandish tray of food that he would never share share with Roscoe. (laughs) Roscoe. Ever. (laughs) And then about the time the third act rolls around, and everybody finds out who the real villains are, because either Bo or Daisy, would, if, if it were... Females, then it was probably Bo that would naively get involved with them, or if it was a guy, they, it would be Daisy. But then it's found out that they're the real villains, and Boss and Roscoe are enacting their plan, and basically everybody has to kind of team up with everybody to bring the villains to justice. So there were several times where the Dukes would actually do something for. Boss and Roscoe to kind of clear their name and make sure the villains got their justice. I mean, I know that's not maybe every single episode, but I'd say that's definitely a good chunk of them.
1: Yeah, I do think that that formula worked. They were going to be a family show. And if you listen to the cast members that are still with us and the people that were involved in the show are still with us, they all talk about one of the things they loved about The Dukes of Hazzard was it was a show because of the formula they used and the way they developed the characters, the whole family could sit there and watch it. And there was something for everybody, no matter what age they were in the the family. The the older kids, they were guys or or whatever. They were guys or or, or lesbian women. They were attracted to Daisy. If they were gay men or women, they were attracted to Bo and Luke. But there was the family values. The bad guys weren't really bad guys. There was like a Bible that they had to keep this in in, in play. Nobody smoked on the show except for Boss Hogg's cigars. And that was okay because he's the bad guy, right? So other than moonshine, they never drank hard liquor. They'd have a cold beer, but they would never drink hard. No one ever drank hard liquor. You never heard foul language. The most is sometimes, sometimes boss hog would call Roscoe a jackass. That was about as a course of language as you were going to get. And in the end, the good guys always won and justice was served. And it was a great family show. It had the stunts, the action, but it also had simple stuff. The kids would like with the car. I mean, it was, it was truly a family show. And I don't know if the Dukes of Hazard would work today, and I'm not saying because of all the things we've brought up that are politically controversial now, like the Confederate flag on the car or a character named after the president of the Confederacy. But that is true to the South. They're right here in Greenville, South Carolina. There is a Wade Hampton High School. Wade Hampton was a Confederate general from South Carolina. It's on Wade Hampton Boulevard. I have friends in other parts of South that went to Jefferson Davis High School or Robert E. Lee High School. There's a lot of controversy right now. Over whether these Confederate m- monuments and memorials need to be torn down in the South, well, because they're all over the place, it, and that wasn't the, the hot button issue at the time. That was what the South was back in the late seventies and early eighties; just was, and so it was very realistic in that regard. But I just don't know if it would work today because I don't think they make tele- family television shows anymore, do they? No, you're you're kind of hard pressed to find
0: one that's not animated, and. Right.
1: Even a lot of the animated stuff is for adults, like The Simpsons or Family Guy or stuff like that.
0: Right, right. And probably by the absolute latest the, the end of the second episode, they would have already already put Daisy in her underwear trotting around. Yeah, exactly.
1: What I love to boast about the show, besides it being a family thing, and I I would have I wanna bring this up because I I'm the Southerner on the show. I said it about and I said it about I don't want to say love, but respect for Confederate figures in the South at the time. The South had never been portrayed. Very, very effectively on television until this point, I don't think. For so for a lot of us in the South, this was a much better portrayal of what it was like. Yeah, they were simple and they were country, but they weren't rubes. The Beverly Hillbillies was okay, but that was more about a fish out of water than it was a Southern show. Now, I, I think other than, than Andy Griffith, which is probably the other favorite show based in the South for Southerners, this was the only show that really portrayed the Sout- Southerners as, as intelligent, hardworking people with family. What we really are. It wasn't Dallas. It wasn't Petticoat Junction. It wasn't Green Acres. I think you get you know what I'm saying. It was right. so. And for me. I was from the South. I was born in South Carolina. I had lived in – at that point in my life when the show came out, we were living in Denver, Colorado. But I had spent time in South Carolina and Louisiana and Texas. I was a Southerner born, and it was part of my family. My mother is a seventh-generation North Carolinian. My father is a seventh-generation South Carolinian. I'm as Southern as you can get. And living in Denver, it's kind of nice to be able to watch the show once a week to remind me of home. You know, my, as much as I love Colorado, and, and I've said it before and I'll say it again, Colorado is probably the only place outside of the South I would want to live. But the problem there is I'm not close enough to the beach. I'm, as a Southerner, everywhere you live, even in Tennessee and Kentucky, you can get to the beach pretty quick. So that's the only drawback to the Rocky Mountains and where you live. Uh, but it, it just was nice for me, and it reminded me of home. And as I go back to watch it as an adult, I it, it, not only is it fond memories of my childhood, it's fond memories of where I'm from. and like I said, I've heard people say possum on a gum bush. I've heard people say buzzards on a buzzsaw. Some of the colloquialisms that Waylon uses as the balladeer, that's how we talk in the South. Uh, one that I know Waylon does, and I love it because he gets it right, and a lot of you Yankees don't get it right, is a lot of Yankees think that the saying is, as happy as a pig in slop. That ain't the saying. The saying is as happy as a pig eating slop. That's their food. They don't want to be in their food. They want to be eating their food. But mm-hmm. that's how things get lost in the translation, and Waylon... Being a real Southerner, he knew what to say. But there, there still were issues. Like I said, not many of the cast members are from the South, and they gave him a lot of improv. I noticed Tom Wopat and Denver Pyle like to say Crick a lot for Creek. We do not say Crick in the South. We say Creek. Now, there are parts of northern Kentucky and parts of Arkansas where they, still, where they say Crick. But these are the ones that embut on, on the Yankee territory like you in Illinois. In fact, I've heard more people say Crick from like southern part of Illinois and Indiana than I've ever heard say in the South. We say Creek, right? I think, I think
0: the only guy I routinely heard say Crick was John Wayne, but he's John Wayne. He can get away with anything.
1: He gets a pass. He's a Duke. I mean, that's probably one of the few non-Southerners that's a God here in the South. Cause well, he's John freaking Wayne, right? <laughs> so mm-hmm. that was some of the stuff that bothered me. Now, a, a big argument we have here in the South, and I think I can wrap this one up in this episode of, of Geekville, where exactly was Hazard County? You had even said yourself off, Mike, you, you'd forgotten it was from Georgia. You thought it was in Kentucky, right?
0: Yeah, that's what I was told when I was a kid was Hazard County, Kentucky. But if I were understand it correctly, there actually is a Hazard County yes. in Kentucky. I don't I don't know if it's just coincidence mm-hmm. or what, but that's what made me think it was in Kentucky.
1: Right. No, it is. I, I've wrestled there. Yeah, there is a, <laughs> Hazard, Kentucky is a real place. Hazard County, Georgia was just created as a fictional place by Guy Waldron. And so there's a lot of debate about exactly where it is. I will have to say, based on a lot of hints dropped in the show, I can tell you exactly where it is. It's right about where I went to college in Athens, Georgia. Hazard County would be right about where where Clark County, Georgia is right now. Break out a map, but there are clues like they say that it's Hazard. You have to go through Hazard to get from Atlanta to Charlotte. That's right there. There are episodes where they go to Tennessee and it's 50 miles away. That's about 50 miles from the Georgia-Tennessee line. They talk about Greenville where I live in South Carolina, being about an hour and a half away. We're about an hour and a half away from that part of Georgia. Also, the northern part of Georgia is much more hilly and had more much moonshine. You get down to the southern part of Georgia, you're dealing with blackwater swamps like the – think Gator, the old Burt Reynolds movie. That's the Ophachinoki or the coastline, like Savannah. That's southern Georgia. Now, part of this is because they filmed it in Burbank, so it has those – those san those uh, the, the the was it sierra madres the san whatever those the mountains are san andreas mountains there that's one of the big problems i have with the show i told you this when we were prepping for the show i called seth on my phone to talk while i was driving and i was heading down to to down to that part of georgia to help train some guys to, to be wrestlers and i told you when i was on the phone the one thing I, ha- I hate about this is driving down this part of Georgia reminds me that they filmed the Dukes of Hazards in in, in California because none of the none of <laughs> stuff here looks like that. The mountains are different. The, the, the vegetation is different. But for any of you who's ever wondered, that's a big question I know with a lot of Dukes fans. If you want to know where Hazard County, Georgia is based on all the clues that they give in the show, Hazard County, Georgia is about 60 miles east and north of Atlanta. Right along the I-85 corridor, heading towards Greenville, South Carolina, and Charlotte, North Carolina. That should solve all that, okay? <laughs> and for what it's worth, what
0: is based on what you're saying, I'll put in the show notes here at geekvilleradio.com slash dukes. Just uh-huh. type in geekvilleradio.com slash dukes, and that will bring you to all the show notes of this story. I will put a picture of Georgia on there, and I'll circle approximately mm-hmm. where hazard county would appear on the map how does that sound
1: Ex- that sounds exactly just just look for clark county georgia com right in between commerce and athens <laughs> that's because well Conyers and covington which is where the first five episodes were filmed is about 20 miles down the road from there so and there are little things throughout the run of the show that also give stuff away besides the other stuff i talked about things like references to the atlanta falcons references to the university of georgia football team in fact if you notice Boss Hogg has a has a ceramic bulldog in his office at the boar's nest and a small one in his office at the county off at the county offices. That's that's because it's a Georgia bulldog. <laughs> there's there's a line by Luke one time. He says, well, good Lord, she's as big as a linebacker for, for the Falcons. One time they asked Cooter to run interference for him. He goes, I'll clear him out like I was right side of the bulldog's line. To, to a non-Southerner, that you're thinking, bull, thinking bulldogs is tough. No, he's talking about the University of Georgia's offensive football line. That's what he's talking about. In fact, they all talk about. Oh, I, I went down to Conyers. I went to Greenville. I went. They're talking about actual cities that are in driving distance of this area. But, anyways, I'll, I'll shut up now. <laughs> I've, I've I've spilled my pew about about the crick and how that bothered me. Other <laughs> than that, a lot of the southerness was really really accurate. And and as a Southerner who gets a little upset with you Yankees thoughts on us. We're not all good old country boys like the Dukes, but I know them, and some of them are my family. I can believe it.
0: All right, that's going to bring us to the end of this inaugural look into the nostalgia trip. If there's anything you want us to talk about, let us know. We are all over iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, as and as I like to say, the podcast device of your choosing – and train. If people want to talk to you about Duke Boys or moonshining or NASCAR or anything else we <laughs> talked about, uh, where can they reach you?
1: They can always reach me on Twitter at crazytrain_jb. Also, give me a follow on Spotify. Same handle, crazytrain_jb. And I know I've suggested this one before, but if you want to get in the the Dukes a Hazard mood, why don't you look up my 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 Outlaw Country playlist? I'll also get Seth to put a link to that in the show notes. That's a whole lot of Waylon Jennings on that playlist. There's a whole lot of Johnny Cash, a lot of Johnny Paycheck. So you kind of get a feel to at least the soundtrack of what the Dukes of Hazzard is.
0: Geekville Radio is not sponsored or endorsed by any products or services unless specifically stated. The views expressed by the hosts and or guests do not reflect the views of GeekvilleRadio.com, the Wrestling Brethren podcast, family, or any of their affiliates. Some media used in Geekville Radio is the product of their respective copyright holders, all rights reserved.